coming up on Chopper's Politics. You know, I, I would far rather that 60% of the population wore a poppy but really thought about what that symbolised that 100% of the population wore a poppy because Twitter went nuts at you if you didn't. I'm Christopher Hope, Associate Editor at The Telegraph, and this is Chopper's Politics. It's been a sombre end of the week here in Westminster, as the roads outside the Red Lion pub are awash with veterans, sporting medals, and members of the public wearing their poppies. So we thought we'd give you a relatively reflective episode, with two people who work hard for the armed forces every day in their roles. Later on, I'll be speaking to Shadow Defence Secretary John Healy about veteran welfare and whether Labour can keep Britain safe if the party wins the election in late 2024. But first, I thought I'd ask Armed Forces Minister James Heapy to join me at my usual table in the Red Lion pub to talk Ukraine, Armistice Day, and why our last chat didn't quite make it onto the podcast. James Heapy, welcome to Chopper's Politics. Great to have you here. Thanks for having me. Now, our last interview was kiboshed by Liz Truss's resignation. What is Rishi Sunak doing today? What is Rishi doing today? today? Yes, where's the podium? Is he resigning? Just let me know. <laughs> we're, 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 we're underground in, in this, in this uh, subterranean bar. I mean, a, what's happening? For a moment there, a, a sort of bead of sweat was coming where <laughs> I, you were going to tell me he should be doing something that he's not and there was some sort of campaign bubbling. Um, yeah, I know. Well, I hope that me talking to you isn't the kiss of death to another prime minister. Yes. And the, how, just how pathetic my political analysis was that day <laughs> about what couldn't possibly happen. <laughs> you now have on file for blackmail purposes right. till the end of well, time. So. That's, that's one for the, the end of year, listen, uh, <laughs> podcast listeners. On a serious note, Ukraine. Now, Ukraine, um, we're looking at the Telegraph front page today, Russian troops abandoned the city of Kherson in humiliation for Putin. Is that overstating it? Is he humiliated by this withdrawal we're reading overnight? Yeah, look, there is no doubt about it. They are being pushed backwards. They have been pushed inexorably backwards, actually, since the Ukrainians started their counterattacks in late August, early September. It's also fair to say that such has been the success of the Ukrainian mission that it has reached a point where it is militarily sensible for Surovikin to pull his forces back to the eastern side of the Dnieper River, which is a more defensible position. But that notwithstanding, you know, the Ukrainians set themselves an objective for their autumn counterattack as Kherson, and they will achieve it. And that's incredible, as well as everything that we've seen up north around Kharkiv and the pressure that they've put on around the sort of Zaporizhia oblast. So however the Russian generals want to say this is a necessary phase of the war, arguably militarily it is, but only because of the success of the Ukrainian activity over the last three months. Does it make the end of the war nearer? Maybe. The problem is, is the time of year. So it is very, very difficult for very obvious reasons to fight with the same intensity now, actually, during the autumn where the ground is wettest. There's another window in the midwinter when the ground is frozen. But there is a kind of eight week period now where tempo will naturally drop away because of the weather and the ground. If that weren't the case, you would think that with their tails up, the Ukrainians would keep pushing. We, as their supporters in the world beyond, need to help them to rearm and recock as quickly as they can so they can take advantage of all the opportunities 
to manoeuvre this winter. And that's what we're talking to allies about how we do right now. So is Russia losing, James Heapy? It is certainly not going as they wanted it to go. I mean, the sort of, we're on what, day 250, 260 of what was supposed to have been a three, four-day campaign. You're on this podcast, I think, the week it happened, yeah. And, and, and Yeah, exactly. And, 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 and none of their strategic objectives have yet been achieved. Now, they will have privately revised downwards all of their strategic objectives now. You know, it's far too early to say that they have lost yet. They remain still a formidable set of armed forces. If they had been better led, definitely, if they had been better led, and if there had been less political interference, they would have done better. But a combination of the very, very bad military judgments made by Russian generals allied to the interference that has come directly from Putin, alongside the incredible courage and tenacity of the Ukrainians and the strategic depth that the Ukrainians have found through their allies in the West, puts us in a position where David may well do Goliath. Do you still worry about uh, Putin and nuclear weapons, even tactical nuclear weapons? Well, I mean... Has that gone away now? Of course the MOD is always thinking about the worst-case scenarios. But it is inescapably the case that the only person who has ever spoken about this as a nuclear crisis is Putin. And I think that it was interesting that the Russian ambassador was sent out on TV the other day to kind of go, we will not use nuclear weapons here in the UK. Um, you know, he has, you know, around the world, I think the Russians are now starting to to land that message. And that, that just goes to show the importance, actually, of, of broadening this as a diplomatic competition to the world beyond. Because it's, this isn't just a moment of Euro-Atlantic security crisis. This is a global challenge to a rules-based international system. And actually, the Indians, the South Africans, the Indonesians, the Mexicans, the Brazilians, you know, the Argentinians, you know, there are all sorts of countries around the world that have relationships with Russia but who are absolutely outraged at the idea that anybody was talking about a nuclear threat from within the so Kremlin. Pull back in now. And so actually that, that response globally from people that Russia regards as its allies, from people Russia regards as its export markets, I think has been really powerful and caused Russia to change its narrative beyond Europe and actually has done more to bring non-aligned states in the UN General Assembly across towards a sort of more uh, a position where they're condemning Russia more openly and keenly. Just, just finally on, on Ukraine, your old pal Boris Johnson is looking at some kind of role in rebuilding parts of Ukraine. He's got Rose named after him. Of course, he won all those plaudits, didn't he, for leading the international coalition against Russia at the beginning of the war. What have you heard about this? No, nothing, but that would be amazing. And it wouldn't surprise me. I mean, it was, it was, it was really... Interesting, as I was traveling extensively um, to kind of make to, to, to build the coalition, the co particularly the coalition of donors, of lethal aid donors, in the early part of the year, that you know, you'd get on a plane at Heathrow reading papers that were full of end for Johnson, you know, what a disgrace. And then you get off the plane at the other end, and it's like, you're mad, you know, what are you doing? You know, Johnson, was, he, he, Boris had achieved this kind of global profile, and he genuinely was leading so the see, world. You can see a role for, oh, for him in post-reconstructing. I, post I, 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 I can imagine Ukraine. that President Zelensky 
will want Boris to be a global advocate for Ukraine. I mean, I think, I think, I think Zelensky and Boris are genuinely very close. And I think that's to the UK's advantage because, yes, of course, the government has moved on and Rishi is now prime minister. And I think, by the way, Rishi is every bit as committed to what we're doing in Ukraine as, as Boris and Liz were. But I think it's I think it'd be good for the UK for Boris to be in that sort of global envoy role, you know, encouraging states to to not just do the lethal aid stuff, but to do the rebuilding so Marshall stuff plan for well. Ukraine. It's been described yeah. as my friends. Yeah. And it could be uh, and the government here could get behind it. Yeah, it'd be great. Yeah. We're sitting here um, the day before Armistice Day. You've come in with your extraordinary uh, array of medals there, James. Remind me of your service in the Rifles, uh, the Royal Gloucestershire Regiment as an officer. Um, People now think that I just tart around Westminster in my medals for (laughs) the fun of it. I have come to talk to you on my way to the opening of the Guard of Remembrance outside Westminster Abbey. So there's a reason I am deeply impressed by the the brass you are wearing in the pub. Um, um, it's never been more popular, has it, Armistice Day? Now, I, you know the same, I'm 50 or something. I think it's, it's become more a bigger thing over the years, hasn't it, uh, the 11th of November? How do you explain that? So, look, it, it has, and the poppy appeal every year is more successful than previous years. As more and more um, veterans die, you see, from the, from the Second yeah, World War. Yeah, and that's, and that's the thing. So, I mean... On on the one hand, you just say, "Well, that's brilliant because it's money coming in." Of course, to it's brilliant. The veterans charities. It's great for 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 the for for sort of delivering for those who have served and those who are bereaved as a consequence of of, of the service of a loved one. The danger is that it becomes just a national. That, that, that the act is in the buying of a poppy as a sort of ritual and the wearing of a poppy as a sort of as an obligation rather than as a sort of considered thing about this is my support for those who serve, have so you, served, and most importantly, those who have made the like ultimate You don't like poppy shaming, do you then? Obviously. No, I, I, I don't actually. I mean, I'm, I quite, um, I think that people wear a poppy or they don't. The armed forces do what they do irrespective. I think that our nation should be very proud of our armed forces. I think our nation should be, very proud of all of those who have served and should regard it as their duty to support those who have served for the remainder of their lives. You know, I I would far rather that 60% of the population wore a poppy but really thought about what that symbolised that 100% of the population wore a poppy because Twitter went nuts at you if you didn't. Mm. That um, does happen out uh, there. It does, it does. And, you know, and, and you, you see it in the, you know, the, the US military talk about it very candidly that the sort of culture of thank you for your service is, is, is ubiquitous. Everywhere you go, if, you, if people hear that you've served, they will make a point of saying thank you for service. But it doesn't always mean anything beyond that the expected thing to do in that circumstance is thank them for their service. So... I guess I just um, what what I want at this time of year is you know, give some money to the RBL, wear a poppy, please. It's important. Veterans and people who serve see how many people are wearing poppy, and and you definitely notice when you're in a place where nobody's wearing a poppy. Um, but when you pause in that, you know, last post is a sort of wonderfully emotional piece of music and when played well the way it kind of the way the bugler pauses and lets notes float and it just and I find that quite evocative and then in the two minutes that follow some people will be able to picture friends colleagues family members 
that they've lost through military service and you naturally think about them. But even if that's not the case for you and your family, there's still a thing to do just to pause and to think that right now and on Sunday when we're doing this as a nation, there are people who are in grave danger on behalf of our country. And so if you've not got anybody individually that you can think about in those two minutes, just think about the bravery of those men and women in our armed forces who are risking their lives right now to do what's needed to keep our country safe. Think about their families and the sacrifice that those families have kind of accepted. And and just be grateful that 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 brave men and women are willing to do despicable, dangerous things on our behalf so that we can sleep well, whether you wear a poppy, you know, and, and get to give us the freedom to choose whether to wear a poppy or not. Gosh, what, what, you, what you think about? Do you think about, because you're in charge of the armed forces as well as you served, I mean, you've got a huge... Uh... So I do, I mean, I, for me, um, we... Um, uh, in 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 Sangin uh, in 2009, we had a very difficult tour, and part of our way of dealing with each death was that on the evening of that death, sort of around five-ish, you know, the sun was setting, we would um, we would gather on the helicopter landing site, and um, and our bugler, the, the bugle major of two rifles, was just the most incredible musician. And he would, he would blow last post in a, um, in just this most haunting way, and you could almost you could hear it sort of drift off across the Helmand Valley and sort of bounce back off the hills, and and he would sort of blow it in a way that you know as if the Taliban were listening, and the way he blew mattered, and then we'd pause, and. And I can't help it. E- ever since that tour, the beauty of the way that Bugle Major Blood but blew last post, whenever I hear it now, I am stood on the helicopter landing site in Fob Jackson and Sangin. When I pause, I think about the people who we lost on that tour. And just as significantly, actually, is Revali, the piece of music that's played after the last post. Because just as last post should be blown sorrowfully you know hauntingly Revali is about back to the ramparts get up at them you know and and so hearing Revali played crisply and defiantly and again bugle major bud would play it beautifully in a way that was like you know telling the taliban you got one of us but we're back to the ramparts tonight and we're coming back at you and you know and as a nation that's what the act of remembrance is about it's a moment of sorrow and mourning and respect for the sacrifice of those that 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 have made that ultimate sacrifice in the service of our country. But in but when we sound Revali, as a nation, we're signalling our intent, as we're doing in Ukraine right now, to keep standing up for what's right, no matter what the price. Just briefly, thank you, James, for that amazing testament there. When people wear different colour poppies, people shouldn't mind and worry about that. That's also, uh, a, I mean, I but you, you can, you, I, I what mean, you I, say matters because... You, you, so uh, I, I, some people do, some people care... Purple, that, white... That the different colour poppies are a different political spin on what should be an entirely apolitical moment. I just think that this, you know, we stand... Millions of people have given their lives in the service of our country so that we have the freedom to make those sort of political choices. And I don't want to create 
a lack of freedom, you know, because that's to dishonour the sacrifice, I, I would say. Just finally, autumn statement next week, 3% of GDP on defence by 2030. Are you going to resign? If it well, happen? I mean, look, I, I was definitely, I would have done had a prime minister who had promised it to me, not delivered it. I felt it was my duty to he hold promise it. He hasn't promised it yet. And in fairness, not one of the three who were in the running three weekends ago were willing to promise it because of the fiscal situation. So I asked, I asked all of those who stood um, to promise that they wouldn't rule it out because I continue to believe it is a necessary thing that we must get to, ideally by the end of the decade, but as soon as possible thereafter, otherwise because of the nature of the world in which we now live. But I can't hold a prime minister to account for a commitment they personally haven't made and they were very clear that they weren't willing to make, And nor was Boris, nor was Penny. The fight goes on. And the first cuts happened this week, the axing of the national flagship. Well, I, I mean, I just think, Chris, it, in order to give you hope... Let's call it a necessary reprioritization because when our undersea critical national infrastructure is being held at risk in the way that it is. That's cables to America. Cables, to, yeah, you know, the, 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 the fiber on which the global economic system is based, secure communications, you know, the, 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 the sort yes. of the, the arteries of modern it, global life. Okay, I, we've I, got to protect. There's a war, I get that, but is it, is it, is it sunk or is it just listing? I mean, national I'm flagship. Trying, can it be? Can it be refloated in, a, in an easier I, time? James Heaper just. I think me. it's. I think it's some way off, given other priorities. But I know, Chris, that you are an optimist. Your surname says it all. So uh, you should carry on your campaign. And I, I know Telegraph readers will be with you every step of the way. But the MOD has to make these tough choices. And right now, it's about keeping our undersea CNI safe. James Heaper, a characteristic, frank, and honest, and moving interview with us the day before Amherst today. Thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank, Thank you. you very much, Andy. Thank you. James Heapy there. Now, do stay with us, listeners. Coming up, I'll be talking to Shadow Defence Secretary John Healy about Labour's commitment to keeping us safe, nuclear weapons, and why he hates a new national flagship. Right after this. Right now, the whole world is watching China. It's the 20th Party Congress, a twice-in-a-decade political set-piece that reveals the outcome of China's very secretive leadership selection. And there is, of course, only one man in the running. Xi Jinping. This is seismic. After the death of Chairman Mao Zedong, there has been a two-term limit on Chinese leaders. No more. Xi is on the cusp of effectively becoming ruler for life. Understanding him has never been more important. They turned this place into a hell. We're in Beijing. We, we see business people got disappear by the state all the time. I mean, everything is protected and you're under constant watch. But reporting on Xi? Well, that might be my toughest assignment yet. I've come into a bathroom now to try to upload all these files in case on my way out I get stopped and searched and they try to delete these. Despite 10 years in power, he remains a puzzle, one we know very little about beyond official propaganda. Who is he, really? How has he managed to build a cult of personality? What kind of a leader has this made him? And what does that mean for all of us? China under Xi doesn't like these sorts of questions. Don't touch me! But I'm going to try and ask them anyway. I'm Sophia Yan, and this is How to Become a Dictator from The Telegraph.
Now, it's been a difficult few years for the Labour Party when it comes to defence policy, as the party has struggled to find its voice after the Jeremy Corbyn years. But one man charged by Sir Keir Starmer to do just that and restore the party's reputation as the party of defence is John Healy, its Shadow Secretary of State. And joining me right now in the pub, hot-footing it from the Eurostar from Brussels, is John Healy. John Healy, welcome to Chopper's Politics. Great to have you on. Thank you. We're here in the Red Lion pub, the basement, recording a bit later on Thursday because you're just off the Eurostar from Brussels. Indeed. I've been to NATO headquarters again. Right. Um, seen the Deputy Secretary General, our own ambassador and head of military and uh, ambassadors from other leading nations. And it's part of underlining the unshakable commitment that Labour has to NATO and also getting on top of some of the big changes that NATO is now leading, Mm -hmm. particularly after Russia's invasion of Ukraine. You said recently that Labour is the party of NATO, didn't you, in that interview in in Washington. What do you mean by that? I mean, it was a Labour prime minister that helped found and led the foundation of NATO, including the collective security commitment in Article 5. We're very proud of that. It was a Labour government that also established the UK independent deterrent. We're proud of that as well. Those are have been unshakable parts of every Labour leadership since the end of the Cold War. Until? Until Jeremy Corbyn. I mean, it, that was shakeable into Corbyn, and the issue of the of the at-sea deterrent was definitely not clear, and the NATO commitment also wasn't clear under that leader. Well, in, in the 2017 manifesto and the 2019 manifesto, it was absolutely clear. The, yes. the, the commitment to both the deterrent and, of course, what Labour has always stood for, which is using our role and responsibility as a permanent five member of the UN Security Council to help broker the sort of arms control disarmament talks that we've done in the past. We've got to do more of that in the future and it's one big gap that we've seen from this government over the last 12 years. But that came, became a contested space, the idea of are you safer or less safe if Labour win power. That was a, a debate amongst some people at the election. That, has that gone away now? Can you confirm oh, we are? Mm, your mm, commitment to security in this country is... Oh, look, in 2019, some of the hardest doors to knock were those with Help for Heroes stickers in the windows. Mm. Um, and Keir Starmer and I both served in government. We know the first duty of any government is to defend the country and keep the citizens safe. Uh, people have got to trust us to do that. Uh, so part of my challenge, and it was what Keir asked me to do, to taking on this job when he became leader, is, look, Labour's got to speak with credibility and authority again on defence. And I think you've seen from him, he's made NATO a personal priority. He and I have done three NATO visits together in the first six months of this year. That's a lot. And that's no, a indeed, lot of time no, for the no, indeed. But but, but we're a, eight weeks. I mean, that's a lot, lot, lot of time. But we're we're you know we're a party with deep roots in defending this country, setting up NATO, establishing the deterrent, and throughout the last century, it's been working men and women who've served on the front line, sometimes dying in service for the country. We're a country with deep respect for our armed forces. Theirs is the ultimate public service, if you like, and they display the qualities that British people admire most: courage, service, discipline, good humour. And particularly now, at a time of remembrance, it's important we pay tribute to their service and thank them for that. They defend the country and they also help us with our resilience as a society at home as well. If you were elected Defence Secretary, how can you guarantee to voters that the old issues which you saw under Corbyn won't come back? Well, Keir Starmer has said... Labour will never again go into an election not trusted on national security. And it's part of my job to make that good. My discussions at NATO were about Labour's 
commitment to NATO. They were also about both the sources of British pride we have in our contributions to NATO. So we have, which is significant. Well, we we lead NATO's uh, entire maritime operation. We lead that. We're known as the country that will step up and help sort things out for NATO. We've got some of the best capabilities that are respected throughout NATO and part of the big deterrence that uh, NATO has for uh, so subs, anti-submarine warfare, our carriers. But there are also big questions arising over our commitments and whether we're fulfilling in full mm. our obligations, for instance, to field a fully modernised warfighting division. That's still not set for till 2030. Uh, big questions over the centrepiece of that, the new armoured vehicle, the Ajax vehicle, where you know we've spent $3 billion on that as British taxpayers. Uh, we've still not got a vehicle that's in service, accepted as safe, uh, and it's already five years overdue. Equipment failures are sadly a long-standing issue with both Tory and Labour governments, but you're right to highlight those. You mentioned uh, nuclear proliferation. What do you mean by that, John Healy? I mean that as a nuclear power, it's an essential part of our deterrence, and we hold the deterrent in the UK to help NATO allies and protect NATO allies as well. But we also have a responsibility, and you're seeing the US starting to open up talks despite the tensions with Russia at the moment, quite properly. But the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty was signed by Wilson under a Labour government. The Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty was signed by a Labour Prime Minister, Tony Blair. And this part of our duty as a leading nation globally on the UN Security Council as one of the five permanent members, one of the few nuclear powers, it's important that we have this deterrent, but it's also important that we see the sort of measures that reduce risk, reduce the risk in particular of miscalculation, alongside the that deterrence. That means reducing numbers of nuclear weapons in the world. And, and you know, at some point, we've got to be willing to try and uh, ensure that we can see a new round of arms control discussions. Britain can play a part, as we've done in the past, to try to lead that. And, of course, we also do need warfare rules, rules of engagement and conflict, which we don't yet have in space, uh, cyber. Um, some of the, if you like, what military people call the new domains of warfare. Where are you on these plans for a new European Union army? Are you in favour of those? No, never have been. NATO is our collective security in Europe. It undermines NATO, right? Most European nations look rightly first to NATO. That's where our British first duty is. Look, a European army is essentially something on paper Mm. for the Europeans. There is certainly, however, an important role for the European Union, and we've seen this in Ukraine, where it was the European Union that led the way on sanctions uh, and on monitoring the sanctions. It's the European Union that has led on how we can step up the energy security, how we can deal with some of the cyber attacks and disinformation. So it's absolutely right that the European Union has a security role. President Biden's recognised that. The British government haven't. And in future, a Labour government would have to fill that Europe-shaped hole in our uh, global strategy, our integrated review, if you like, view of Britain in the world. You'll order one, won't you? Uh, If you get into into power in 2024, you'll order a new review of... Yes, I mean, 18 months ago, we had what was called the integrated review. That's the government were right to do it. It was first 
comprehensive review of foreign defence security policy across the board. It was a good thing. It was lacking now in it forecasting had some the Russian, well, Russian threat. Well, it, first of all, it didn't see the Taliban takeover of uh, Afghanistan. No. Secondly, it didn't see Putin going into no. Ukraine. So uh, we weren't prepared. We it, hadn't it was sold it. as a cyber warriors document, really. Oh, it was sold as a cyber warriors document, but also it was trumpeted as a tilt to the Indo-Pacific. And what that did was risk taking the British eye off our NATO obligations. Now, Ukraine has brought us back up short, Mm -hmm. um, but what it's also demonstrated is that there is a complementary role for the European Union. Uh, It's necessary, in my view, to make Brexit work, to rebuild some of Britain's relations with key European allies, and there is scope for some sort of defence and security agreement that allows that greater cooperation that is in our interests and theirs with the EU, defa- with the EU on defence and security. That will alarm but some people, won't it, on the on the right it, and the Brexit right? Maybe it shouldn't, because absolutely everything as our top priority is NATO. But there are things that NATO can't do, won't do. That the European Union has the legal powers and the certainly in the last year a track record of doing linked to security that. Britain needs to be involved with. We can contribute to that. We can reinforce it. It's our collective security in Europe as after. The big issue looking into next week's autumn statement is is defence. Where are you on this issue of spending three percent of GDP on defence? Do you support it? The three percent is nothing more than a campaign pledge to get Liz Truss the Tory leadership. At the first point, <laughs> that went well. Then, well, look, look, it was a pledge for her leadership. At the first opportunity to put a money where her mouth was, that mini budget where there was a 200 billion splurge in public funding, there was no more money for defence. So it's fine talking about future funding for defence, but let's see what's we actually are where we done. are. We are. Rishi oh, Sunak has not pledged that, has he? Rishi Sunak has not pledged it, but we are where we are in a current spending settlement in which the current Defence Secretary signed up to a real revenue cut in the defence budget. So at the moment, he has the next two years to manage at least £2.7 billion in cuts to the revenue funding of his Now, that means less money for forces recruitment, for forces pay, for forces training, for forces families and to support you? What would you do if you become Defence Secretary in late 2024? Would you commit to spending more money on defence in that way? That would surely discombobulate your Tory opposition if you went firmer and longer and harder on defence spending than they can. Well, first of all, I'd say Labour will always spend what's required on defence. 2%, 3%? And what's required is based on assessment of threats, which clearly in opposition you can't see the detail of. So until we've seen the full breakdown of the threats, the capabilities we've got, the weaknesses, and also we've opened and exposed the waste in the financial books, we won't make that hard decision. But let me just say, you know, it, it depends on the threats. After after 9-11, Labour in government then introduced the largest sustained increase in defence spending for two decades. The last year of a Labour government, we were spending 2.5% of GDP on defence, and that's a level that's never been matched in the 12 Tory years that have followed. So there is historically a commitment there to defence spending, but you won't give any numbers out now in the pub. We've done it before, we'll do it again, and you know we've seen the consequences of cutting back in mm. defence spending over the last 12 years. More than 40,000 fewer full-time forces. One in five of the Navy's service ships have been taken out of commission, and the last five years alone, they've axed over 200 RAF planes. And you know the consequence of that is that satisfaction with service life's fallen below a half for the first time for years. We're speaking in the basement here of the Red Lion Pub on the eve of Armistice Day. What will Labour do more to help veterans? 
Well, for, for, for me, we've got to renew the contract now with those who serve. Uh, that's much better support and treatment for those who are in our forces and their families and to stay with those who have served through their life of veterans. And, you know, if you take you take the one measure that is £20 million a year is all that this government spends on mental health support for veterans. You know, it just isn't good enough. And the fact that we've got new veterans figures out now mm. showing that more veterans are on universal credit than have the government's veterans' ID card in this country, it tells you that this is a government that has talked a lot and changed very little in the lives of veterans. Is that because veterans require bespoke support when they leave the uniform? Is that right? When they, they no, it, require, it, requires, it requires the will and commitment of government to make things happen. So we, there is a pledge to end veterans' homelessness in this parliament. But there's no plan. There's no funding. There's not even a measure of veterans' homelessness. What, what, what would Labour do to help veterans then? What, what actual things would you do? Well, on homelessness, they measure they measure homelessness properly in London. They don't the rest of the country. We'd have that in place. Last year, when we saw uh, combat stress calls to their helpline double overnight when Kabul fell, we made the commitment that we'd boost that twenty million a year the current government is giving with a thirty five million boost to support mm. mental health veterans. Yeah. To talk about veterans, you're one of the, you are the most experienced shadow cabinet <laughs> member. <laughs> Ten years in government back in 2000 to 2010 in education, treasury, <laughs> housing. What are your lessons for your colleagues? You know what it's like to be in power. You know what it's like not to be in power. It's not much fun not being in power in politics. Opposition is, is pants. There's absolutely <laughs> nothing to recommend it. And for any colleague that feels they've somehow arrived and made it in the shadow cabinet, I say to them, you've got this wrong. Every morning you need to wake up and you've got to work out how on earth we can get back into government. That's the thing that that's the single purpose that's driven me to, to change serve, stuff, make to stuff ser- better. To serve the Labour Party through Ed Miliband's shadow cabinet, Jeremy Corbyn's shadow cabinet, now in Keir Starmer's shadow cabinet, and. Uh, you know, I don't often quote Tony Blair, but he was right when he used to say the big difference between government and opposition is in opposition you wake up every day and you think, what can I say today? Mm. In government you wake up and you think, what can I do Perhaps. today? Perhaps one thing you can do, so finally, John Healy, is you can re-energise this brilliant plan for a national flagship. You called it a vanity yacht, I think, in House of Commons this week, which is a great shame. Yeah, Chris, I half expected you to be in mourning because you and you and the Telegraph were the biggest cheerleaders. In fact, actually, the only cheerleaders for Boris Johnson's vanity project. Look, two hundred and fifty million quid, you know, on a yacht for Boris Johnson. With the ship. The Royals didn't want anything to do with it. Unclear you know, on that. This is this you know, at a time when the threats are rising. You know, the fact that uh, the Defence Secretary has switched the funding to a, a ship that is going to help. Keep our undersea cables safe. Our I think no one disputes John Healy. It's exactly exactly no one, what's even needed. I would say that's that's money well spent on cables. But perhaps it could be at some point in uh, under Labour government we have this conversation again in a happier time, and perhaps you might see the value of it. Well, I'll take that as a sort of early representation for a, <laughs> a, a priority for a new Labour government. John Healy, Shadow Defence Secretary, straight off the train from Brussels for Chopper's Politics Podcast. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you to both my guests this week, James Heapy MP and John Healy MP. Thank you to my producers, Louisa Wells and Giles Gear. 
to share your thoughts on what I guests had to say, please do email me, chopperspolitics at telegraph.co.uk, or tweet me. We're at Chopper's Podcast. And do tune in next week on Monday when I've got a special edition of Chopper's Politics featuring Richard Tice, the leader of the Reform UK Party, and Stephen Watson, a key advisor on the National Flagship Task Force. And for more Westminster insights, please do check out my daily Chopper's Politics newsletter. The link for that is in the show notes to this episode. And as ever, do please catch my weekly Peterborough Diary column out Fridays at 7pm online and in Saturday's newspaper. And as always, please do buy a copy of the Daily Telegraph. I know you won't regret it. Until next time, cheerio.